This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil discuss the implications of overturning Roe v. Wade, what lessons to draw from the latest election in the Philippines, and whether the United States will be able to stay out of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Now, let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Bill Monk, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College, and I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who is a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well. I am I'm like 24 hours away from heading off to Greece. So I'm I'm anxious as I get all the stuff together, but very, very excited about the next uh, next uh, week, uh, 10 days to 10 to 14 days. So it's going to be great. Now, you're not just going off on a vacation to lay no. on a beach. So, well, you are kind of going to go lay on a beach, but you're going with college students, right? So this is yes. actually a, a class you're taking. It's a class through North Central College, and uh, I've been, you know, for the last eight weeks, uh, the class has been meeting, and we've been studying um, ancient Greek uh, philosophy and democracy and globalization, and then the travel component is kind of the culminating experience where we get to go and, and be in Greece, and uh, we're going to spend a few days in Athens and then explore, basically run along the coast of Greece and, and do a, a loop through southern, central, and northern Greece, and then come back to Athens and spend a couple days on a Greek island, so it's, it's going to be a... a uh, fast, but also really, really uh, great cultural experience. Very envious. I've only been to Greece once, but the food was amazing. <laughs> the people were yes. so nice. Like, I, oh, it was just beautiful. Yes. Like, I've I've wanted to go back for a long time. That's that's. It is. It's a beautiful place, and and the, you're right. The food is just extraordinary. The colleague that I'm going with, the other professor, uh, he's actually from Greece, which makes it even more wonderful because he knows all the little places to go, and he speaks the language fluently. So I mean, so we can go and find these restaurants, and oh, I, yeah. I the last time I went, we had been in Italy beforehand. I took a group of students. We went to Italy and then Greece, and I didn't think the food could get better from Italy. I thought that's it, nothing. But Greece was better. Oh, that tzatziki sauce, Phil, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it being served some sort of grilled cheese, not like a sandwich, like a block yes. of cheese that they had grilled. Yes. It was just um, it, like it still sticks with me years later. It is. It's the and it's it's nice to be able to to travel again. Although COVID cases seem like they're going up again, but but it's nice to be able to travel and do some of those things. Which you know, for what two to three years, most of us have not been able to leave the country. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm jealous of that. My son just went on a trip too internationally, and it's yeah, I I, I forget how much I, it's been. It's been so long since I've been able to travel internationally. I miss it. You and I we have talked about doing this, Bill. Like you and I have talked because yes. I've t- I've taken these travel courses as well uh, from at colleges I've worked at in the past where you know we go and study comparative government and you know visit various countries in Europe and you've done them related to international law and human rights and stuff and we've talked about you we we should do that we should do. Yeah a politics lab travel course where for like, uh, you know, adults for like real people that who want to go on one of these trips and we can go like a, you come travel the, the world with Bill and I, we go for like two weeks and learn stuff. We could do that. I, right. I, you know, it's, we've talked about this over and over and over again. And, and, uh, you know, we're curious about whether there's a market for that, right? Obviously, you know, colleges and universities do it all the time, but we, yeah, we've talked about doing something where it would be like a class, but it wouldn't be an official college class. You would just travel with Bill and Phil and there would be a theme, you know, we've talked about, like you said, doing a comparative one where we'd go to London and Berlin and, and Paris and kind of think about the different government structures. We could do something on, you're right, another course on international human rights. Um, and, there, you know, we'd have little educational parts of it, but also kind of that experience of being in the different cultures. But, you know, it's the thing is, we don't know if, if there's a market for that. You know, we like to do this. So, um, yeah, if you're if you're interested, what, what is our what is your email, Phil? That's the best one to get to yet. Well, it's either way. It's either Phil at the Politics Lab or Bill at the Politics Lab.com. Either one. You can email either one of us and then yeah, if that's something you'd be interested in, we, we've, we've kind of thrown around a couple ideas of things we might do with the podcast moving forward. And that, that's one of them. So if, uh, if people are interested, it'd be great. And, and, you know, Bill, I, Bill, you, you are old enough that you don't like to rough it anymore. So if we did something like this, you'd be staying in nice places and, and seeing nice things. There's got to be a lot of stars in the hotel for me to be happy, right? <laughs> uh, that's the way it works. And and camping is out. Uh, you know, when we lived in Colorado, did some of that great fish and all that. No more camping for me. I'm just, uh, I, I'm too soft now. I distinctly remember when we were in grad school, you trying to convince me to go spend a weekend in a yurt at one point, and I I passed, yes. and I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life, if I remember That correctly. was a good decision. That was one where like we got lost and, and weren't sure if we were going <laughs> to find the yurt in time. We thought we might be sleeping you know, out in the open, and yes, I remember thinking we got back. It was good that Phil didn't come up. <laughs> 
So no, but yeah, if people are, if, if that's something you're interested in, uh, shoot us an email because we'd be curious to see if there's a market for that. And, you know, we're at the very early, the embryonic stage of all this, but, uh, um, you know, travel and education is a, is just a wonderful way to go. And we'd love to, to find a way to take, uh, take people in and see the world. Yeah. Also, so in, in also in the good news bucket, uh, Phil, you had some good news on the the student loan front. Why don't yeah, you share yeah. what happened? And so this can be something our students, or our students, our listeners could learn about. Yeah, I thought I would mention this because I've seen a few other people uh, uh, mention this on on social media and whatnot as well. So uh, yeah, there's if you are unaware, there's been uh, changes to uh, under the Biden administration to uh, public service loan forgiveness. So people who work in public service can have their loans forgiven. It's a program that's been in place for a long time. If you work in public service for ten years, um, you can get the re- and pay you know on time for those ten years. You can have the remainder of your loans forgiven. And it's been a notoriously difficult program. It's uh, you know a really low acceptance rate. It's been all sorts of red tape. And so Joe Biden, uh, the Biden administration worked to make it uh, easier to get through. And I, I got word uh, yesterday morning that I my the remainder of my after paying 17 years on student loans, the remainder of my student loans are have been forgiven. It's uh, both. It's a fantastic feeling. But I, I just I want to mention it because it's not been terribly well publicized. So if you work in public service, either for the government, if you're in the military, you work for you know national government, state government, if you work for a nonprofit, any sort of non nonprofit organization, um, you can get credit towards loan forgiveness, um, and it has been made easier. Any payment on any plan uh, will apply towards loan forgiveness, and and uh, you have to apply by October. So um, if you haven't, but if you're not aware of it, you should you should uh, look into that. It's public PSLF, Public Service Loan Forgiveness. It's a great program. These are such great programs, and I wish the I wish we did more of them, right? To incentivize people to do service work, and whether that's education, I mean, there's a variety of ways that you could do this, um, and 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 help people out with those loans. I think it's wonderful. I'm excited for you, and uh, yeah, and and uh, you know, at some point we were talking before we we started taping that this would be a fun topic to kick around because Biden himself is facing this question in a yeah. different way, whether to to forgive student loans and if to if, if to forgive to what amount, you know, is it ten thousand, thirty thousand, you know. And I think Biden is, is no longer going to do a big number, but there's some conversation about whether he might uh, forgive a smaller number. And and again, uh, a hot topic, uh, but a really, really interesting one. It is interesting because it's, it is an idea that is very popular with young voters, is popular yes. with, with educated voters. But um, I think that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, young and educated voters make up a really actually quite small right. percentage of the electorate. Yeah. And there's a lot of like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, Blue collar, uh, you know, not uh, people within the Democratic base who were not supportive of this, and so yeah, it's a it's a tough decision about you know how, how it, again the divides. We talked a while back about the divides in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and this is an example of an issue that. Uh, is I think more divisive than a lot of people realize. Yeah, it's it's a complicated issue because even if you decide that you're going to do some loan forgiveness, the the amount is really really messy here. And I shouldn't say messy, tricky because um, you know if you're thinking about you know different amounts will affect different populations. Um, and so thinking about you know the uh, students of color who have like larger loans, is it better to be targeting individuals with those larger loans who are mm-hmm. you know they're a burden for, or is it is it better to say we're giving everybody a lower amount? Right. Um, you know, there's 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 sort of a science to thinking about that as well, and and uh, um, yeah, I think there's there's, ar- there's some powerful arguments for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, should we should we uh, let's dive in? Move on I, for, real quickly before we do that. Uh, the as uh, you know, I always throw this out there, but the website is thepoliticslab.com. You can go there, and I've got uh, the the topics we're going to get into today. There's I think five articles that I've got on the web page. So you can go and do some reading if you want. You can follow us on Facebook at The Politics Lab and on Twitter at Politics Lab Pod. You can send us messages in either of those places as well. We talked about sending emails. If you wanted to send us a message on Twitter or Facebook about uh, potential interest in, um, uh, you know, if you were, if you, if you'd like to travel around the world with Bill and I at some point, you can, you can let us know there. So, uh, all right. So we, should we jump in? There's Let's so, go. so yeah. much going on. All right. So yeah. uh, we talked last week about the apparent upcoming Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case that will, uh, Supposedly, uh, overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, the leaked opinion is a draft. Apparently, it's you know a several month old draft. I guess I didn't I didn't realize that, but um, it it will likely change before its official release. But uh, we wanted to dig into its logic a little bit. Um, Justice Alito argues in the in this. Uh, 
you know, this draft opinion that a right to abortion cannot be found in the Constitution or inferred from its provisions. In particular, the 14th Amendment has come up. It's been the kind of one of the focuses. Um, and Alito argues that the right to abortion does not have, quote, any claim to being deeply rooted in history. Um, this line of reasoning has led a significant number of legal analysts over the last week to raise very serious concerns about what other precedents, what other legal precedents might also be overturned via this line of, of argument. In particular, a number of cases involving gay rights, birth control, and interracial marriage could be at risk. Um, Alito and other conservative jurists have argued that the two issues are completely separate and that the decision in the Dobbs case does not hold implications for other rights. Alito says, quote, to ensure that our decision is not misunderstood or mischaracterized, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Bill, the, the logic used by Alito in the Dobbs case seems to, seems to apply directly and clearly to other cases, in particular, um, you know, cases regarding sexual autonomy, how you carry out your private sexual life. If the 14th Amendment and history don't protect abortion, then they seem unlikely to protect these other rights as well. Uh, you know, Alito insists this is wrong, largely because abortion falls into a special moral category because, and this is the quote, it destroys what those decisions called fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. So basically abortion is different because you're, you're, you know, killing a, a, a you know, a, a unborn child basically is his argument. Now you and I, Bill, we're not legal scholars. We do know about politics. So let's let's dig into this. Let's dig into the sort of the logic of it, the legal side of it, but also the politics of it. Should people be concerned about what might come next from this court or from other you know political institutions based on the decision in Dobbs? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think they should. Now, we don't know, right? So there's so much unknown with this. It's it's entirely possible uh, that when we actually get the decision, it's not this draft, right? It's I think it's likely to be, and that's another sort of the behind the scenes of making the sausage. You know, it's it's likely to be something like this. Um, it may be softened, but but yeah, if if we see a decision that is consistent with this Alito draft that we've seen, I, I think yes, it's absolutely people should be talking about that, and and as you noted, you know, over the last week, there have been a lot of really smart constitutional law scholars weighing in on this. And, and I think what you see is that, you know, Alito is sending mixed signals at best, right? I mean, I think it's, you could not, obviously he made the statement uh, that you read, which is to say, you know, uh, these other, you know, don't worry. Basically, Alito is saying, don't worry, these other rights are safe. Um, yet, I, I don't know if we should trust that because I'm thinking about, you know, what we saw in the confirmation hearings uh, for the three Trump appointees and, and all of them were asked about Roe and all of them gave this sort of the same cryptic answer, which is to, you know, point out that pre uh, precedent matters uh, and that Roe was basically settled law. And all of them gave the right signals that, you know, that the you know, prevailing view here is that Roe is settled and it's not going to be overturned. And then they came in and over likely to overturn that. So, so when Alito says, don't worry, these other rights are safe, I think you have to start digging into that constitutional reasoning that they're putting forward and saying, well, does that reasoning make it seem like those other rights are safe and and I don't think it does right if we're if the argument here is that the constitution and the 14th amendment in particular doesn't protect the right to abortion because it doesn't say anything about that. Well, the Constitution doesn't say anything about interracial marriage. It doesn't say anything about gay marriage. It doesn't say anything about contraception. So to me, it seems like all of these issues uh, certainly could be up for revision. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I think when you open this, this can of worms with this decision, um, it is a, a legal earthquake and we should expect there is going to be some fallout. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that's why the conversation is really, really important. How do you come down on this? I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think if yes, uh, you know, I uh, 
I, I think there's lots of reason to be concerned. Um, I, you know, the, the on the idea of reassurances, right? So Alito and others are trying to issue these reassurances, you know, that nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that don't concern abortion. But, you know, ab- reassurances are only they're only good like one time through. Right. And so that's where, like, you know, like you said, uh, in, in confirmation hearings and other times, there have been lots of attempts over the years to reassure people that Roe v. Wade is set, that it's not going to be overturned, that the court doesn't intend to overturn it. And then when you do, you can't then turn around and say, but believe us this time when we say we're not going any further. Right. And so yeah. I, I think that I think, yes, you've you've lost the ability to reassure when you've when you've sort of taken this step. And 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 I, I mean, I think, you know, again, if you read the language of Alito, like from a very technical standpoint, the statement, nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. That can be very that can be totally true. And all he I mean, the emphasis on nothing in this opinion, right? That doesn't mean that in future opinions, we won't decide the same yes. thing about these other issues. And in fact, I mean, so this is where I kind of walk down like the the, the potential options that I see here. It, one of these things has to be true. Either, um, you know, Alito means what he's saying, right? And that what that means is, uh, you know, these other laws um, are uh, they are basically the same, right? So when he says nothing in history, nothing in the 14th Amendment, nothing in the Constitution protects these rights, he has used very similar language to talk about gay marriage in the past, yes. about how the 14th Amendment doesn't protect this. Like he's made it clear that he thinks that does, that was decided wrongly. And so if he's using that argument here, then I think you have to trust that he would consistent. If he's consistent in his legal opinions, then he's going to carry those those same ideas to other uh, um, other uh, issues. Now, whether or not he also has four other justices on overturning gay marriage or something, um, we where it's less clear. But I do think the the logic applies. On the flip side, let's say we take him at his word on the other half of this, which is to say, where he says, "Look, this is different, right? This is t- abortion is different from these other things." because it holds the special moral category. If that is true and we go down that logic, it, what he's basically arguing is this is different because you're this is this is akin to murder, right? Like you are you are ending the life of a of an unborn child. If that is the case, then that special status for abortion does have direct implications for things like uh, contraception, right? And birth control, right? I mean, there are already, you know, governors and local uh, politicians who have started talking about passing laws, you know, banning contraception or, or, you know, related to that. So either way, there is reason to be concerned. The third option, and then I'll shut up, is that none of this is, it's not about legal logic, legal reasoning at all. It's what we talked about last time, which is that the court is a political body, right? And so politics came into play. The, the conservative, you know, conservative movement has been pushing for this for a long time. And if it's just a political Political body that's kind of you know carrying out the goals of a political movement, then there's no reason to think that it wouldn't do the politically expedient thing and and also overturn uh, you know uh, gay marriage or other you know uh, um, uh, issues that that tie into this. So yeah, I mean I I I I I feel no reason to be like reassured by anything that that he's saying here. Yeah, no, I, I think there are two things you said that are really, really interesting. One is the political angle, and I want to come back to that. But first, you know, let's look what they've said in other decisions. And in the Obergefell uh, case, which was the decision in 2015 uh, approving same-sex marriage, um, Clarence Thomas wrote, uh, I guess it was a statement uh, that uh, Alito joined on, and they used that same language. Uh, uh, Clarence Thomas called the decision at odds with the Constitution. He specifically says uh, the court read into read a right to same-sex marriage into the 14th Amendment, even though that right is found nowhere in the text. So Alito is is on board with same-sex marriage, saying that it's not there in the Constitution. So so when he says uh, in the Dobbs case that, no, no, it's only abortion, right? Well, at least on same-sex marriage, you, you, you've signed on to say uh, it's not there as well in the Constitution. So, But to your other point, the, the political side of it, you know, just because Alito is there doesn't mean on these other issues you're going to find uh, other five, another five or four judges. And I think Gorsuch here is the really interesting one because uh, Gorsuch signed on was it a couple of years ago uh, to one of the more sweeping LGBTQ rights, where it said that protecting gay and transgender people from workplace discrimination is in the Constitution. So you know, we see in Gorsuch where it appears that he is 
supportive of overturning Roe, uh, his views on LGBTQ rights are, are very different from Alito's, right? So so even if Alito is in a place, there's no guarantee that the rest of the court is. But again, that's the that's the politics of it all that is so important in terms of understanding where the court will move, move uh, in the future. I, I mean, I think I think that's where for me that's where the politics, the the arguments that the court is apolitical or whatever, the wish that it's apolitical comes in, and and that like there are. Anytime you're dealing with a complex issue like this, there are you know multiple conflicting arguments that come into play, right? So, yeah. like, you know, is it which one matters in this case? Is it the unborn life? Is it the the is it the Fourteenth Amendment thing? Is it the other part of the argument, which is that uh, um, uh, that it should be decided by the voters and not by the courts? Right? This was kind of the other aspect of the of the decision. Which so regardless of whichever one of those you go down you come back around to this idea that there are these other um, uh, cases, these other precedents that have been set that are in danger, whether it's because in the, in same sex marriage, it wasn't decided, you know, it wasn't decided by voters or by, you know, elected officials or whether it's about the fact that it wasn't in the 14th amendment. You can pick and choose, which are, you know, you can pick and choose the argument you want to achieve the end that you want. And it feels like that's, I, I think that's what's, Kind of what you see playing out here, and 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 that's where you know again, elections elections matter massively. Oh yeah. I, well, and it's that's not even fair because uh, you know elections should say the court should be structured different than it is, and yet we're not. Sure. It's institutions yeah. matter. So. Well, and I think yeah, you know, you sent me an article uh, or an interview with David French where he was talking about some of the the decisions. And it was a really interesting one. In particular, he was talking about the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, and he he noted that you know what rights do we as individuals, as citizens, possess that aren't specifically listed in the Constitution? And he says we know there are some. Right. I mean, and the court has said that there are rights that aren't specifically detailed in the Constitution that we are entitled to. Now, uh, the Alito decision says abortion is not one of those. But what's the criteria by which we make that that right. assessment? Right. To say that, well, the Constitution doesn't say it, but there are some things that we're going to protect and other things we are not. Right. That's a it's a that's a tricky line. Uh, and I get it. Right. I think. I think there should be clear rights that aren't specifically detailed in the Constitution that we can draw from that document. Um, and in fact, I would probably have a much more expansive view of that. I'm I'm not so opposed to a kind of a living constitutional uh, interpretation. But, you know, Alito is making a very strict argument to say, hey, Constitution doesn't say it. Um, it's, it's out. I, I don't know if you can have that kind of framework in the 21st century when you're thinking about so many issues that the founders could never have possibly thought about right I, I mean at some point if you if you want to be that strict of a you know of a, of a literalist about the 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 constitution then uh there's not you, the need for a court becomes less and less That's prominent right. right i mean if if, it, yeah. if it's not open to interpretation then why do we have courts that do the interpreting right and so that's that's ultimately where it has it has to be open to interpretation in some way and that's where again that's where the the politics of it come in and that you're applying your particular interpretation when you start applying these sort of moral arguments that abortion's different because it's moral, you have stepped into a political as opposed to a legal um, uh, realm, right? You're, you're making a legal argument, but it's based on politics. It's based on morality. It's based on like who gets to determine these sorts of, 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 of issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the politics is, is flipped quite dramatically on that, right? So when you go back to the 70s, it was oftentimes, or 60s and 70s, it was oftentimes Republican governors uh, that were instituting some of the first uh, abortion rights. Uh, it was a, it were conservatives on the Supreme Court in Roe who held, uh, you know, said that there was a constitutional right to abortion. So, I mean, we see here the way in which the, the politics really of the evangelical movement, which emerges in the late 70s and early 80s, like this is a bi- product of that, um, you know, in, in terms of the, you know, the, the election of Donald Trump and then his appointment of these justices, right? I mean, so you can't, obviously the judges have their own legal philosophies, but you can't understand those legal philosophies without appreciating the way in which this fundamental shift in the political system has driven the, the country to this particular place. Yeah, I mean, so much of what we like. I, I, there's a there's a really interesting. There's well, there's all sorts of books on it, but the, there's an interesting article in the Atlantic right now about um, the the 
the uh, sort of evangelical movement in politics and how that has sort of come of age and how it's how we've gotten to this point where we are now. And it's really fascinating. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that, that people take for granted about the, the nature of politics, the, the sort of the, the religious right, the sort of originalist arguments about the Constitution, those are all relatively new ideas, right? Relatively new, you know, in the last kind of 40 years of American politics. And it's sort of fascinating to watch how, again, you know, the, the, um, what we think of like Southern Christians, uh, were, you know, Southern sort of evangelical Christians were very apolitical, not that long ago. Right. And the, the anti-abortion, uh, movement was a sort of a Catholic, uh, movement and, and it's yeah been transformed into this, uh, yeah. I mean, in a way that this is remaking American politics in, in kind of hard to imagine ways. Which is good, which is to suggest that uh, what comes forward, you know, where the court moves, even though they're not supposed to be a political institution, I think those where the evangelical movement, where the MAGA group goes in terms of the politics, is likely to drive some of this. Um, you know, the, the the justices can't fully remove themselves from that political environment that they operate in. So, um, you know, the evangelical movement decided Roe was going to be their their primary focus. Now that that has been basically won, where do they move? And is it LGBT? TQ rights uh, is, you know, I, I doubt that they're going to go with interracial marriages, but maybe contraceptive, right? Is contraceptives like that could be an issue, uh, and that will likely dictate where the court drifts. So, I mean, again, it's you can't separate politics from the court. It's just they're they're so intertwined in really really interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. Should we move on? Yeah, let's let's talk about the Philippines. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Did you have any other final thoughts on that on on Roe? I, I no, I mean, I, there's going to be so much. I mean, yes, there's so like I think for, we're going to be talking about this decision for years, right? Uh, for decades, possibly, and 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 we'll we'll see how it all plays out. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot more that we can get into, and I think we will get into it m- moving forward. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's. So for our second topic, it takes us to the Philippines, where on Monday, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., uh, known as Bong Bong, uh, the former, <laughs> which I, I, I want to start calling you Bong Bong, Phil. It's, I love that. I'm up so, for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so he is the son of the former Philippine dictator. Um, he was elected president with a commanding margin of victory. Uh, the victory of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. represents a remarkable revi- revival for the Marcos family, uh, who in 1960 was driven from office and the country after ruling for 20 years. Uh, the public unrising in 1986 involved millions of Filipinos coming together to reject the deadly abuses and rampant cor- corruption of the Marcos family, which siphoned billions of dollars from the treasury into the family's personal bankroll. In fact, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. and his wife, uh, Imelda, currently hold the Guinness World Record for the largest ever theft from a government. Um, I didn't know the Guinness World Record did that kind of stuff, but they, they hold the record. So you may be wondering, how in the world did the son of the one of the most corrupt public officials in history win a popular election? Social media disinformation. Uh, specifically, the f- family rehabilitated itself through a fun and hip propaganda campaign on TikTok and YouTube. Uh, this pro Marcos propaganda has upgraded and modernized the family using songs and get this, Phil emojis, <laughs> so, which I just love that. The Washington Post noted, quote, key to the messaging is that the family has been unfairly maligned, that Pre- President Ferdinand Marcos was not a corrupt klept- kleptocrat, but one that brought glory to his country, wealth, and good infrastructure. Uh, the effort also involves large groups of pro-Marcos trolls who are constantly scrubbing online content that describes the Marcos as a dictator or as a kleptocrat. Um, so the election uh, of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is truly extraordinary to development, and to be honest, one that I never thought would have been possible. It's probably because I don't spend enough time on the TikTok, Phil. Um, <laughs> what do you make of this development? Uh, I mean, this is both, this is, again, this is both, it's fascinating and disheartening, right? It is, it is both, uh, shocking and unsurprising as, as so, as so many things have been, um, in recent kind of political history. So I, yeah, I mean, the idea that somebody, you know, as corrupt as, as, I, I mean, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around what, what this, Looks, I mean, trying to come up with what that analogy would be, I, you know, I don't, I, it, it, it's hard to even come up with like sort of the a modern day analogy of, of, you 
know, it's like Saddam Hussein's son coming back to power or something uh, in, in, you know, in Iraq. So, um, yeah, I, I think this is a testament. I mean, this shows us so many elements of why democracy is in danger, I think, around the world. Part of it is is the information ecosystem that we live in, in which um, I, again, everyone having access to a microphone, every, this like absolute, to, what, what we thought, you know, free access to information would be good for truth and knowledge and all of that other stuff. Um, it's been good in some ways, but it's been absolutely devastating in others, right? You flood, you flood the internet with so much crap that it becomes impossible to sort of decipher or to filter through, or people don't have the time and resources to filter through and decide. And, and and uh, social media is on this. You know, we've gone from uh, you know it feels like we've gone from Facebook to Twitter to you know TikTok, and and each of those is sort of like a decrease in the amount of like yeah. information that you're that you're uh, conveying. And so when you get to you know these very short uh, you know various social media posts where you're not getting in depth, you're not you know it's it's a very similar thing. You see what's going on in the news media, right? Where rather than reading in depth newspaper articles, you go to you know, nightly news where you get five minute stories and then you go to, you get to, you know, online and whatnot, where you have these little you know, one paragraph blurbs. And so people don't have that in depth. So part of it is that information ecosystem, which the Marcos family has used brilliantly, right? I mean, this is yeah. the model of, it's the model of Donald Trump. It's the model of everyone else who has done this, right? Which is that I've been unfairly targeted. Um, in fact, this is, you know, believe what I tell you instead, which is, you know, the, whoever the, the elites are, are lying to you. So that's all one part of it. The other part of it that I think is fascinating about this is there's there's something that's very human about all of this. You, we've seen this kind of element of nostalgia. There's uh, there, there's lots of research that shows how human you know how people are nostalgic, right? We tend to believe we tend to remember the past more fondly than the present. We think that things are worse than they were ten years ago when they're in fact not. Um, if, if anything, they're you know better. Um, but you can see this in politics as well. There are lo- there's a long history of people. After like a terrible form of government, ten years later, looking back fondly on that terrible form of government, there's you know uh, when I I feel like uh, you and I have talked about this, but you know post post World War II Germany, right? The number of Germans who looked back for a long time on like the the years of of the Third Reich as like the greatest moments of of uh, German history was like disturbingly high. The number of people in Eastern Europe after the fall of communism, you know, immediately very happy to see communism fall. But within 10 years, right, when the economy is struggling and all of that, there's this fondness of the way it was, right? This sort of misremembering that it was better in the past. And I think you see some of that here, right? Like this idea of like glory and wealth and infrastructure in the past. And it's it's easy to kind of get caught up in that. And so there's something, you know, something about the human political experiment here that that kind of comes through. It's really disheartening when you like value good government and you you want to believe <laughs> right, right. that people are able to figure out who's going to be a good leader and all of that. All of this leads to, you know, um, really dire predictions about the state of democracy and the ability of right. people yes. to choose good governance. Well, I think that's absolutely right, right? I mean, yeah, the idea, the, the Marcos, as you noted, are just, I have this brilliant strategy and it's it's not deeply thought, I mean, it's, it's sort of not... It, it's not intellectual. It is sort of reactionary, right? It's using TikToks and, and it's not surprising. They're targeting, targeting younger, younger populations and it's working, right? It's not surprising that TikTok is, is appealing to younger generations. What surprised me a little bit is that it's also appealing to older generations, people who lived through the corruption of the Marcos until 1986. And they're also in, in, in significant numbers buying the propaganda. That's what's really terrifying to me to say that you know you these these social media companies have such power and unregulated you know some really dangerous results can 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 occur um yeah i mean they're you're able to rewrite history uh and it's not like you're rewriting history a thousand years ago you know you're writing history you know a few decades back that uh you know the marcos family was terrible they were corrupt they were brutal um they stole billions and, and right now, there are still ongoing investigations of the Marcos family trying to get some of that money back. Well, if, if Bong Bong is now in office, what, you know, what, what are the odds that he's going to continue to support this, right? I mean, it's just going to continue, uh, rewriting that narrative. And, and some have said that Bong Bong doesn't even have a very developed platform. You know, he really is running to, to save the name, right? To bring the Marcos family back. Uh, I think he has a son who's also in politics, right? So it becomes this family legacy. It feels 
feels very much like Donald Trump and, you know, and a lot of the populists that we've talked about, simple solutions to complex problems, use media to, to manipulate people's thinking. And yeah, I mean, it, I think it puts a lot of pressure on us to think about how do we want to engage and use social media moving forward? Because the unregulated version of social media just brings out the worst in all of us and we are so easily manipulated. So yeah, all of it is, I think, really, really trouble when we put it in the context of, of broader democratic development. You're, you're right. I, there, I mean, there has to be some something, right? We, ha- we have to do yeah. some form of like regulating this, this media environment or this information environment we live in. And I don't know what that answer is. I don't know what the good solution is. And, and uh, it will probably take us a while to figure something out. But yeah, the the, the way we're doing it now, uh, yeah, I mean, the stuff that you're you're exactly right. It's it, it. What's fascinating is, like you said, it's not we're not talking about uh, we're not talking about twenty year olds who are who have been convinced that the way things were in the fifties in the Philippines was a greater era, right? This is you're you're talking about people who lived through the Marcos era who are, who have been convinced that it's not actually what they thought it was, right? Or or that the the experience that they had back then is you know they're whatever that they've somehow gotten it wrong. Um, yeah, it's it's it is you're 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 right. The extent to which you see. Um, how people want, I mean, this is, I think, the element of populism and Donald Trump and everything. People want it to be true, right? You see the element yeah. of conspiracy theorists and get rich quick schemes. I mean, there were, you know, rumors going around that, that the, the, you know, if, if Marcos is, was returned to, if he, if he's, if he wins, his family's going to share wealth, right? That like, that's that the right. average person is going to get rich. There's no way that's happening, right? But, but people no. want to believe it, right? Because it's, you know, you, you, you're hoping for things to get, better quickly. I mean, the thing that is particularly depressing about all of this is that the opposition candidate, the candidate who was the current vice president or whatever, who, who he defeated is like a human rights lawyer. Who's like all about like, you know, good governance. And I mean, the, the ideal candidate in terms of like putting together someone who putting forward someone who cares about actually governing and doing what's right. But again, you have this, you know, again, it's the, the, the parallels to Trump, right? This sort of shiny, uh, you know, uh, sort of flame buoyant person who has has uh uh exciting stories to tell or whatever becomes more appealing yeah i mean it is it is tiktok right i mean there are things like when you you watch tiktok you're drawn in and they're always, it's i'm not on tiktok but you send me stuff and it's like it's stupid and it's funny right even that mm-hmm. that works for campaigns um also so if the philippines does something interesting I, I guess i'd forgotten this that they're the president and the vice president run separately um and the winning vice president candidate is the daughter of duterte the current president right so you've got a family legacy there as well uh all sorts of problems you know when you start thinking about this, you know, transitioning from one family to the next and bringing the previous kleptocratic family back. Um, yeah, I, I, I am really, I, I'm worried about our ability as a human species to handle social media in a sophisticated way. Because as you noted in your, your initial comments, when we when the internet and social media first emerged, regimes were trembling at the power of the people to be able to expose the corruption of governments and and governments and and politicians have learned to flip that and are now using uh using the people to to get their desired needs and it's yeah the parallels between this and the United States and other populist candidates around the world is it really is it's just stunning there's really interesting questions tied up in this as well about like and I and I haven't I, I don't know enough about the I mean I know generally the history of, of Philippines under Duterte and whatnot but um, the, there's a, there's an interesting element of, of the ways in which, you know, discourse is sort of broken down because, because he was also great at, at, you know, the yeah. kind of the crazy stuff, the crazy ideas and, 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 uh, you know, targeting, talking about killing drug, well, not just talking about actually killing drug dealers yeah, and, right. and like the, 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 the sort of breakdown in the rule of law, but how that was tied to the rhetoric that was being used and, and how, as that rhetoric, as that sort of political conversation breaks down, right, it just kind of leads to further breakdown of institutions and, and whatnot. And you, you know, you can see that in the way. Again, I, I, I feel like you see that in the United States. The way Donald Trump talks about politics changes the way people think about politics, and it yeah. it changes the the way we interact with each other in a way that's you know sort of nastier, more con- confrontational. But it, that also leads to a further breaking down of of democratic institutions, and it just kind of spirals, and you can see that kind of playing out here as well as as yeah. politics gets nastier people are willing to look to 
politicians who are willing to play the game in a nasty way as opposed to, you know, a human rights uh, attorney who who wants to sort of bring some level of uh, you know, again, rather than rather than someone who wants to be a, a Joe Biden or a Mitt Romney or whatever, right? We're we're drawn to the Donald Trumps um, of of the world after we've lived in a Donald Trump world. Yeah, strong men are well positioned in this climate, and yeah. we're seeing in the Philippines as we've seen elsewhere them gravitating toward a strong man. I think what's a little distinct about the Philippines, specifically this Marcos campaign, compared to like Trump. You're right, Trump was was negative and it played off fear and hate. Um, but this, like the TikTok stuff, it's it's about making people feel good. It's about songs and emojis. You know, that's that's a different approach, and it feels like it, it appears it also works. And there have been a number. I'm trying to think. It was the Washington Post or the New York Times had a story about this and they they showed some of the TikToks that went viral and it was it was showing young people playing the songs for their grandparents and the grandparents were dancing with it and you're like that's really powerful that you can you can again rewrite history make people forget all about all the bad stuff and and just bring a new member of the family back and say no 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 it wasn't that bad and actually it was you know we we're going to make the Philippines great again it's a a common formula but i think what's slightly different about this is that it's it's more positive and catchy than some of the stuff we've seen out of the other populists which again it just suggests that they have a lot of tools at their disposal well, it's, I mean, it's really interesting because well, ultimately what they both have in common is that it's about emotion and not about logic, right? It's about either yes. anger and um, who I'm pissed off at and that's a really good motivator or I don't really want to think that deeply about the problems of the world. I just want to feel good, right? And so e both of those are an escape, right? Like I'm, I'm pissed at you for, or I'm just like happy. Both of those are like an escape from like having to wrestle with the the real problems. And and I, I mean, that I, this is again sort of tying it back. <laughs> I, I, this is kind of going, you know, way off off base with this but I, I can't help but think about like the the election system the way elections are playing out in the United States where I think about the Democrats who are really good or who have like focused so much on like the head right like we're going to make an argument about good policy and why this should work or whatever and Republicans are great about the emotions of it and and I think you know I think back to like what was so popular about Barack Obama why was he so popular and it, I mean he obviously had important and significant policy proposals he that were popular the Obamacare stuff and and and, you know, at the time getting out of wars in Iraq and elsewhere. But I feel I would argue that what what made Obama so popular, what got people so excited was the emotion, right? He like yes, drew out yes. the it was the hope and that aspect of it. And so that that ability to kind of use emotion, it feels like there's a lot of people who have gotten really good at using emotion for like really crappy ends in politics. And like some people <laughs> need to figure out how to use emotion for like those more positive gains. Like how do you use it to unite yeah. people and to get people to feel good, not about the Marcos regime? but about like good governments or governance or making the world a better place. No, oh, that's right. That's a really interesting point. I know we got to move on, but before we do, there was another election and you and I were just talking briefly about this in Northern Ireland. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts just quickly, you know, Sinn Féin, uh, uh, the Nationalist Party uh, going, you know, going way back in history, had ties to the IRA in, in Northern Ireland, uh, complicated history there. But they, in the most recent legislative elections, had won the largest uh, percentage, uh, the first time this has happened. Uh, so, so I don't know, thoughts or reactions on that? It's a pretty interesting development. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, if I if if I'm not mistaken, like you were saying, this is the first time in history uh, since 1921 or whatever that that uh, the the that a Republican party has had the most seats in the in in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's a really significant turn of events. I mean, there's been a lot, for a long time, you know, discussion about how population shifts and changes in Northern Ireland might play out. You you add to sort of population shifts, you add to it all of the Brexit stuff, which people have yeah. you know argued might have a big impact on the way uh, politics in Northern Ireland plays out as well, because you're dealing with now this this non EU boundary between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, I mean it's really fascinating. I need to. I haven't had a chance to like dig into the results as as extensively as I want, but um, yeah, I mean, what do you have? any initial thoughts on it? Yeah, it's, I think, like as you said, it's a, it's a dramatic trend, and I think you're right. It's feeding off of some of Brexit. It's feeding off the current problems right now in Northern Ireland, where essentially Northern Ireland is now disconnected from the United Kingdom. Right? You have to. It's it's no longer. It's, I mean, it's one country, but the customs border is basically between Northern Ireland and the UK, which is you know, it, it just doesn't make sense, right? So one wonders, and I think this is still a long way down the road, uh, down the road. But would it make more sense for Northern Ireland to once 
again join the Irish Republic and make the you know the uh, the island of Ireland one country. And I think the a victory by Sinn Fein here suggests that there's. There's at least a movement towards that, because that is one of their long-term political goals. Now, who knows, you know, what ultimately happens, but I, I think this is a it's a significant development. And we'll see, you know, Sinn Fein now with actually having some real power. How do they govern? Um, you know, they've basically reinvented themselves as, as a more legitimate political voice. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see what they do moving forward. Well, it'll be interesting to see what sort of backlash there is as well, because I mean, this yes. is not, I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're talking about not just years, not just decades, but like, you know, centuries of, of political history and deeply enmeshed identities. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, of essentially, you know, a Catholic party, um, control or being having the largest is, is not going yeah. to sit. There's a lot, you know, I, there will be some people in Northern Ireland who are fine with it, but there's going to be a lot of Protestants in Northern Ireland who are deeply, uh, you know, troubled by that. And so, you know, what impact does that have? on politics and how that sort of, uh, you know, leads to it. it yeah, it, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out moving forward. It will. And then that, I, you know, one of the things I'm most curious about is, is the bond and connection between the Protestants in Northern Ireland and and the mainland. And for years, it was a very, very tight bond. But but there are, you get the sense that there's a bit of a split now and that, uh, that you know, Great Britain isn't as committed to Northern Ireland as they may have been in a previous era. And that, that has to make those living in Northern Ireland, the Unionists, rather worried and concerned. And so I think, you know, over the next decade, we're going to see some really dramatic political developments. And and uh, yeah, um, and again, some of it may, may all the way come back to that decision about Brexit, too. Yep, yep, yep. All right, well, let's see. For our final topic, it brings us back to the war in Ukraine, where on Monday, Putin gave a big speech to commemorate the May 9th holiday celebrating the Nazi defeat in World War II. Putin cast the current invasion of Ukraine as as a comparable effort, calling Ukrainians Nazis and insisting that Ukraine was planning to build nuclear weapons without any evidence. Uh, Putin went on to describe the invasion of Ukraine as a preemptive move against the impending aggression of NATO forces. Sort of interesting rhetorical tool there. Uh, We also learned this week that... That, uh, of two high-profile leaks from the American officials about U.S. involvement in the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, one leak revealed that the United States has allowed Ukraine to target um, and kill multiple generals. A second leak revealed that the United States intelligence has helped Ukraine forces locate and strike the Moskva, the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, which was was sunk. Apparently, the leaks were not part of any strategy, and Biden was livid about them. Uh, This led Thomas Friedman to write a pretty interesting editorial where he suggests that the U.S. may have quietly crossed the line into a direct war with Russia. In particular, he writes, quote, The staggering takeaway from these leaks is that they suggest we are no longer in an indirect war with Russia, but rather are edging toward a direct war. And no one has prepared the American people or Congress for that, unquote. Friedman goes on to warn that boasting about killing his generals and sinking his ships or falling in love with Ukraine is likely to get us enmeshed there forever and is is the height of folly. Phil, this is a rather important point and one that Joe Biden seems to be aware of and worried about. Uh, do you think the U.S. will be able to stick to its original mission and, and, and avoid mission creep here? I, this is, I think, a fascinating uh, question, right? I, I mean, I think I, I, the the, um, <laughs> the it's. I mean, it's. I think the. the Part of the problem, part of the struggle is what, what you see out of coming out of Putin, right? We've talked about this some already, but yeah, and there were a lot of people who expected that maybe as part of this May 9th speech, he would declare victory or he didn't do any of that. But what you could see in that speech was a further kind of shift in the rhetoric he's using to talk about this still about, you know, fighting Nazis, but about this larger war, not just against Ukraine, but against NATO and against the West who, who are, you know, targeting Russia and whatnot. And so he's, you know, in the, in the process of, of reshaping this, I, um, the, I think one of the interesting kind of thought, pro, you know, thought experiments is, is, uh, I, you know, sitting as an American, I think, you know, most of our listeners probably are uh, supportive of Ukraine. Um, in this conflict, it's easy to feel like the U.S. should should support, should do whatever we can, and, and we're providing weapons and all of that. And it feels like, well, we're not directly engaging in in, in conflict with Russia. But you know, the, the idea that we're providing intelligence that is leading to the sinking of Russian flagships, the killing of yeah. of high ranking Russian officers. If you flipped this around, right? If you thought this, or if you flipped it around, and Russia was providing intelligence to I don't know Al Qaeda, right? Like go back in time, and Russia is providing yeah. intelligence to Al Qaeda that is allowing them 
them to you know target and and kill high-ranking U.S. officers and and take out high rank you know um, you know incredibly uh, valuable uh, military targets. You know, would we consider that to be a provocation from Russia? And and you know, it it doesn't cross that line of like blatant aggression, but it gets really damn close. And there's you know aggression is one of those things that. Um, it feels like, you know, it feels like, well, I know what aggression is. You know, I have a sense of what aggression is. Aggression is when you go to war with another country. But, you know, I, I'm sure you deal with this as well. When you start teaching, when we get into international law or ethics and war, the, the idea of, of aggression is this is this very fuzzy line. Right. And and what what qualifies as, you know, going too far or not is hard to pinpoint. And if I'm Vladimir Putin, I could see where a lot of the stuff that the U.S. is doing would seem awfully provocative to me. Right. So I, that becomes, you know, all that to say, it brings me back around to this, uh, you know, this question you ask, which is about, can we stick to our original mission? And the U S has tried to, you know, say, and, and, and Thomas Friedman argues that, you know, we should stick to the, the original goal was to help a, you know, repel a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But how do you help repel a Russian invasion? You do it by providing weapons and by providing intelligence that allows you to target. Now, Targeting a naval vessel is that—that's where you know—is that part of repelling a Russian invasion or not? Well, it's—it's—it's it's, it's taking part in the the you know the Russian um, uh, uh, operation, so it's a part of it. But um, yeah, I, I don't. It, it you know, how do you avoid mission creep? It's hard to do, right? How can you support Ukraine without? provoke without it also targeting Russia. If you're supporting Ukraine in an attempt, you know, in Ukraine's attempt to defeat Russia, then you are inherent. I mean, it feels like this in, in international relations, there has long been this kind of important, but also very false divide between, you know, an actual war and a proxy war. And, and it feels like it's a nuance that's important, but I don't know how you Especially if Vladimir Putin's wanting to reframe the war as a NATO versus Russia war. I don't know how the U.S. avoids that reframing while still contributing to a Ukrainian victory. It can be done, but that's a tough line to walk. It, it really is. And I think Biden deserves some credit for being careful uh, because there are a lot of forces pushing him. I mean, we can go all the way back to like the early stages of the war where it was, you know, send in uh, planes and, you know, Biden pushed back against that. And he's he's been very, very cautious about that. But you're right. At the same time, sending in uh, dramatic resources to the Ukrainians. I mean, you know, when you look at the, you know, the, the, the most recent initiative is like 30 some billion that's a lot of money, right? That's not a lot of money for the U.S. military, but for Ukraine, that's dramatic. And if you're thinking about how much Russia spends, um, that's a pretty big chunk of what Russia spends on its military. So, you know, the United States is involved, but still up to this point has been able to say, no, 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 we're not involved. Uh, but when you start thinking about the impact of these intelligence efforts, um, you're right. If, you know, you Russia has to be livid about this, right? You know, the United States is saying, hey, the ship's here. Uh, generals are here. How, if you're Russia, you don't feel like the United States is is simply a, a bystander. They're actively engaging in this conflict. And so I'm guessing we're likely to see Putin raise the cost for the United States doing this. And, and that may be, you know, targeting some of these supplies as they come in. Uh, it may be more aggressive to say the United States, you can't have two positions. You can't be in the war, but then also telling people publicly you're not in the war, right? So I think Biden has done a really good job of being restrained, but I think that job is going to get more difficult in the coming months because Russia needs to find a way uh, to find victory here. And I think they, they have to be put, they have to push back at the United States at some point. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's the, you know, where, where is this, as you look down the, you know, the next several steps of this process, like I, that's where it gets interesting because you're right. I, you know, it's only going to get worse for Putin, right? I mean, there's all sorts of evidence that what, you know, Putin's having to uh, essentially, Russia is pulling like old military, they're like dusting off old military units and sending them into combat. So, you know, Russia's like the equipment they're using is declining in quality, right? They're like reusing things and pulling things out of retirement and the quality. And, and whereas on the Ukrainian side, the quality is only improving, right? It's like only now that some of these, that, that a lot of the, the U.S. and Western uh, military aid is like fully operational and, and being used. So, uh, it's not gone well for Putin, and it's only going to get worse as time, you know, moves on in in this. And so, uh, yeah, how is he going to react to that? It, that's where, like, you know, that's where I start to worry about. I, 
I, I'm not. I think the U.S. will do a good job, and I think Joe Biden will do a good job of trying to keep the line clear. Because in some ways, it doesn't matter what Russia. I mean, obviously, it matters what Russia thinks because if they think they've been attacked, they'll respond. But in a lot of ways, what matters is you know what do the what do other what does you know what do NATO allies feel about what the U.S. has done? What does China? How does China feel about? Because if Russia does lash out, if they do attack you know American troops or they you know use tactical nuclear weapons. Will the rest of the world think that's justified or will Russia be immediately ostracized, right? And that's where the game that Joe Biden and that NATO is playing, I think, becomes really important. Now, hopefully it never gets to that, right? You you want to both avoid that ever happening, but also if it gets to that, you want it to be exceptionally clear that this was an action by Russia that was unprovoked and not an action by – and I think at this point, providing intelligence – Seems like something that's accepted in the international community, right? Um, It's different from, you know, if the U.S. is the one that starts carrying out the strikes and that for whatever reason, that might be an arbitrary line, but it's an arbitrary line that the international community agrees on at this point. And so, um, yeah, well, I mean, we'll see how 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 does Putin handle that? How does he lash out? He's going to try to push the U.S. to cross that line in some way, I think. This is why the information war is so important. Uh, and, and NATO has done a wonderful job of painting Russia as the aggressor, as the bad guy. And it gives you wiggle room to do this. Whereas if you, if you weren't, if you hadn't painted this as such a clear cut conflict between good and bad democracy and authoritarianism, you know, these, these antics by, or these tactics by the United States and others would be scrutinized much more. Uh, cause you're right. From the, the vantage point of Russia, this feels like you're fighting the United States. The only thing that isn't there is U.S. troops or U.S. planes, right? It's all of our equipment that's coming in, NATO equipment that's coming in. We're providing intelligence. It's just the Ukrainians are doing the fighting. So if you're Russia, like, you don't see this distinction at all. Whereas for the average American, it seems like, oh, absolutely. You know, the, you know we're not involved in this conflict. We're just, you know, providing a, a few bits supplies. But, you know, if, if this $30 billion goes through, that is massive, right? And, and, and all of the heavy artillery that's been going through over the last couple of weeks, the Howlitzers, mm-hmm. not only are they there, they're there so fast, right? And this new Lend-Lease program is going to expedite that process. So, you know, the amount of weapons going into Ukraine, uh, heavy weapons, is the, the pace of that is going to increase. And it's, again, it's going to make Putin's life much, much more difficult. Over the long run, this is going to play out poorly for Russia. I just don't see how they how they declare victory, how they achieve their ends. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse militarily. At the same time, the economic situation is getting worse in Russia. So if if Biden manages to walk this, or the United States and its NATO allies manage to walk this line very carefully, and I mean, this is the, this is the thing, right? Look, look back through history, proxy wars have been accepted. I mean, whether it's, you know, in, in Korea, you know, whether it's the Korean War, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's U.S. supporting troops in, in Afghanistan to oppose the Russian invasion there, like there's a long history. That's just, you know, there's all sorts of proxy wars that have played out like this as well. So um, it seems like Putin faces an uphill battle in convincing the rest of the world that, hey, this time it's not cool that the United States is doing this, right? right, right. Um, you know, if if uh, if the U.S. and its NATO allies and, and whoever else manages to walk this line carefully where they're supplying Ukraine, but they are not getting involved other than providing intelligence and, you know, weapons – um, is Putin smart enough to recognize that that's like that this is, you know, that he that's the way the world plays this game? Or do you think he lashes out? Because it's one of those where I think I think anything that he does at this point within Ukraine, short of like nuclear or chemical weapons, is likely going to, you know, he's going to be able to do that. The minute he, you know, reaches beyond Ukrainian borders, that's when the international community, I think, is is likely to 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 not respond positively, obviously. Um, and so, right. um, is he is he is he desperate enough to do that, or is he just lashing out here, hoping to shake something loose, uh, but knows that like unless something unless he can get the West to mess up, this is he's he's sort of doomed here. Well, as long as NATO is united, he's in real trouble. But he may lash out in ways that are going to put more pressure on NATO. So we've seen this a little bit with uh, with natural gas and oil supplies. Like he could cut those and make the econ- you know the economy of Europe scream. Um, he could start attacking those supply routes and start hitting those weapons as they start coming in. He could escalate in other ways. 
you know, I still think I think he can escalate and bring pain to NATO without using a nuclear or chemical chemical weapon. But he may reach a point where he says, "I'm going to do that as well," um, in the hopes of making it painful for you. You have to make hard decisions now. Um, I think he's. I think it's likely he does one of those before uh, before losing, right? Before just you know retreating. So I, I think it's it, you know we're gonna it's gonna get messy. I, why? I mean, why did he not? I, I know that you don't know the answer to this, but the, the, yeah. my political science brain keeps wondering, like, why did he not? It feels like yesterday, the, the May 9th thing was we were recording this because you're leaving for Greece. We're recording a day early. So yesterday was May 9th. Felt like that was an opportunity for him to claim victory and and find an out, right? To like recognize that this is not going how he was and planning. It doesn't seem like it's going to go the way he planned. Like, why not do a Putin thing, claim that they won, that they did what they wanted to do, which is to eliminate Nazis from Eastern Ukraine and then, you know, claim victory and, and end what is a losing uh, 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 war here. But uh, like, I don't, any, any idea why he didn't take that opportunity? Like, does he see, does he, is that something that is unacceptable at home? Does he see some other way out? I think that's a really great question because I think he had two options. One was the one you laid out, which is declare victory. You know, we've won, we've we've defeated the Nazis, and then hold on to that territory and, and you know, move towards a negotiated solution, or to escalate, right? There was some thinking that he might actually declare war, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a special military operation, but we are now moving towards a war. So either, you know, de-escalate or escalate, and he did nothing. He kind of found this middle ground one, which I think is really curious because is he uncertain where his domestic situation is? Is he uncertain about the long-term military implications of what's playing out? Um, we didn't get the signal that we thought we would. Uh, maybe he's now muddling through. He knows he can't win. You know, go back to the Vietnam analogy, yeah, yeah. but he can't afford to politically lose. So we might see more of this sort of, you know, just kind of, you know, keep creeping through, even though there's no real successes. So again, what's really interesting is like domestic politics may be driving a lot of this. That's fat to look at it through the the Vietnam analogy of of again the 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 goal not being to win but just to avoid losing. That yeah. I mean that doesn't bode well for you know the the next ten years uh, for Ukraine. No. Uh, although Ukraine's getting again the level of support and aid that they're getting from 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 the United States and other countries is uh, it's like of a whole other magnitude oh. from from what we were unprecedented. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that's why yeah that's why the. The analogy doesn't work perfectly, but hmm. it's interesting. So, all right, Phil, we've talked about all the stuff. I got to go to Greece now. Yeah, so. we should have mentioned at the beginning, we didn't. Uh, this is the information that if you've stayed tuned, uh, we should have had at the top of the... We're not going to do an episode next week because you're going to be on a beach in Greece right. somewhere. So uh, right. we're going to take the week off. Um, I'm sure nothing significant will happen in the next week. And then we'll uh, be able to, uh, you know, in, in two weeks, have another have another episode. But uh, yeah, enjoy, enjoy Greece. Eat some great food and... Uh, Yeah, have a great time. I will do that. Sounds good. All right, Phil. I will see you in a few weeks. Bye, Bill. Bye, Phil.